welcome, dear listener, to Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Set aside some moments now and take an adventurous ride on a journey into the psyche of some talented writers. They will dig into your being and titillate you. Oh, I love that word, titillate. While the stories may not all take place in the heartland, I am delivering them to you from the heartland. My intention is to strike fear and confusion into the mind, soul, and yes, the heart. This is Fear from the Heartland. Hello, Heartlanders, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 6 of Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Hey, Heartlanders, you guys patrons yet? Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to join the club. You'll get ad-free versions of this and all our other podcasts, including hundreds of standalone releases from our audio archives dating back to 2012. It's a great way to show your support, and you get a whole lot for it. A police officer is hammering furiously on a guy's door. When the guy opens the door, the officer says, Do you know what GBH is? The guy says, Uh, no, I don't. The officer says, Do you know what GTA is? The guy is just as clueless and says no. The officer pushes on, unperturbed. Well, do you know what AS is then? The guy shakes his head and says, No, officer, I don't know what AS is. Why are you asking me all these questions? Am I under arrest? Whereupon the officer replies, No, these are just initial inquiries. Let's get after it. Old Man Gerald lives in the woods outside of Wicksville. Some of the townspeople think he's just a hermit, but others think he is the devil. Small towns have a way of making their own truths. Is Old Man Gerald misunderstood or something more sinister? And now for your indulgence, Wooden Crows by J.J. Bowie. Consider the crows, I heard him say. They have one foot in this world and one in the next. Old man Gerald always had some mountain wisdom to share, even if he didn't fully understand it. He rocked back and forth in his old wooden chair while he whittled on some piece of tree he had found. From time to time, he would take a few puffs from his briar pipe as the rain drummed out some lost song on the tin roof of the porch under which we sat. People think crows have dark souls, he continued. In fact, they have no souls at all. Gerald said these things in such a matter-of-fact way. He believed them just as sure as you and I believe the sky is blue. It's strange he's even talking about crows. I hadn't seen a one. 
It's as if some random thought popped in his head and he speeded out just as soon as it arrived. I watched as his hands pulled the Barlow knife across the wood in his hand like a surgeon with a scalpel. In the shadows of the porch, I couldn't see what he was making, but he folded his knife and put it away and handed me a small wooden crow with its wings wide. Just don't let it take your soul, he said before taking a few more puffs, or you'll have one foot in the next as well. I didn't know it at the time, but this would be the last time I would sit with Gerald. He died later that same year, and I, for my part, was an unwilling participant in his death. Nobody knows how long old man Gerald had lived in those woods. My father once told me that he seemed old even when he was a kid. Maybe he was some immortal living out his days in seclusion in that broke-down old cabin. There wasn't a road to his place, just a couple of paths cut through the trees. The townsfolk spoke of his place with curious fear. Did you see all those animal skulls and bones hanging in the trees? One would say. How can he live up there without electricity or running water? Another would ask. You have to understand, times were different back when I was a kid growing up in the Ozark Mountains. The internet didn't exist, and people didn't walk around with small computers in their pockets everywhere they went. While the small town of Wicksville was predominantly Southern Baptist, they still held on to superstitions passed down from generations. We all watched out for black cats crossing our paths, believed the color of the sky would tell us if it would be a good day, and ate our black-eyed peas every New Year. As for what the townsfolk thought of Gerald, while well, it ranged from him being some old crazy man to being some sort of sorcerer. Some thought he sold his soul to the devil, and others thought he was the devil himself. How I came to find myself sitting under old man Gerald's porch in the rain started the summer I turned nine. Back then, kids didn't sit in their room for hours playing video games. In fact, during the summer, it was rare to see kids indoors unless they were sick. Kids could be gone all day, so long as they made it home for dinner. Both my parents worked at the factory in town, and during the summer, I spent much of my time riding bikes with my friends or wandering in the woods that surround our town. As with most local children, my parents forbid me to go near old man Gerald's cabin. Still, every so often, a teen would brag to his friends of having knocked on Gerald's door only to run away before he opened it. Others would wait at the edge of the woods for a chance to see him walking around his place only to again run away when Gerald would turn his head their way. The summer I turned 10, I was being an average boy climbing trees in the woods. I was about to reach my summit perch when the limb I grabbed snapped and I came rushing back to earth like an angel cast from heaven. I'm not sure how long I lay there before I managed to open my eyes and gain consciousness. When I came to, the woods felt like some alien planet. Pain came rushing into my body and I couldn't help but cry. I was covered in scrapes and bruises from apparently hitting every branch on my rapid descent. Everything hurt. I attempted to stand but the pain in my right leg was so intense it brought me back to the leafy floor of the woods again. The sun was getting low and I resolved myself to crawling my way out of the woods. I crawled and cried for what seemed like days when I saw a slender shadow amongst the trees in the distance. My blood ran cold and I knew it was old man Gerald. He began walking toward me and I again tried to stand but to no avail. Clawing, digging, trying to pull myself away but I couldn't. In a moment he stood above me in his flannel shirt and tattered blue jeans. 
a smoke ring from his pipe circling his head. He leaned down toward me, and I was sure he would start gnawing on me like some ravenous animal. Had yourself a tumble? He asked in a gravelly voice. So shocked that he spoke that I just stared at him with wide eyes. Do your ears work, boy? I managed to nod my head up and down. He pulled a handkerchief from his back pocket and wiped the dirt and tears from my face. I just kept staring at him, and for a moment, I felt at ease. I'm guessing you can't stand or you'd have run off by now, he said, scowling at me. He was grumbling something about damn kids as he bent down, scooped me up, and threw me over his shoulder. And there I rode like a sack of flour, too afraid to say anything. I wasn't sure if he was taking me home to boil me in a pot or something worse. As it turned out, he had carried me all the way to the edge of town where the Texaco station sat closed for the evening. The sun had gone down a bit ago, but the lights and neon of the station still shine in the blackness. He sat me on a bench near the station's entrance and told me it would be better if people thought I had made it there on my own. He turned to walk away. You're not leaving me? I exclaimed, half surprising myself. Old man Gerald said he liked his privacy and couldn't be bothered trying to talk to my parents in half the town about helping some frail boy who learned he wasn't a bird after all. Station owner be around before the sun comes up, he said. He'll let you use the phone to call your parents. I sat on that bench for what seemed like eternity with only the neon light to keep me company. By the time the station owner arrived, I had fallen asleep and he had to shake me awake. I called my parents from the station phone and they came to pick me up. When they arrived, my mom came running toward me with tears in her eyes. Where have you been? We've been worried sick, she said. I could tell my dad was relieved to find me safe as well, but he didn't show it so much. You all right? He asked. I told him I was okay, but my leg hurt a little. He wanted to know what happened and I explained falling from the tree in the woods, but when it came to how I got on the park bench, I told my dad that I had half crawled and half limped from the forest. I told him I was so tired that when I got to the station, I decided to rest and fell asleep. Amazingly, besides the bruises and scrapes, I escaped my fall from heaven with only a sprained ankle. I felt like such a wimp. I surely thought my leg had been broken. Regardless, that summer I earned a reputation amongst the local kids as being sort of a tough guy. After all, from what they knew, I drug myself out of the woods after falling 100 feet out of the tallest tree in South McCurry County. Kids are the greatest storytellers. Despite spending most of my childhood feeling like a disappointment to my father, he did manage to teach me a few things. One of the things was, you pay your debts. Once I was well enough, I grabbed my backpack and hatchet and slipped the barlow knife my father had given me for my birthday into my pocket and made my way into the woods. Despite the town's feelings of old man Gerald, he helped me and I owed him. Before long, I found myself standing at the edge of the woods staring at old man Gerald's cabin still debating if this was a good idea. I took a deep breath, summoned up my courage and half sprinted to the front door and banged on it. In a rush, the door flew open and standing tall was old man Gerald with shotgun in hand ready to send someone to hell. The look of fury quickly faded to what could only be the face of confusion. Sam hell, boy, he growled. 
What business you got banging on my door? I stood there trying my hardest not to shake or stutter. My pa didn't raise a freeloader, I said. I came to pay my debt. Gerald looked at me with curious amusement. Go on home, he said in an almost pleasant voice. No, sir, a man pays his debt and I'm a man, I retorted. I took the Barlow knife out of my pocket and handed it to him. He took it from my hand, looked it over. He opened it and shaved a small area of hair from his forearm and gave a confirming nod. He tried to hand it back to me, but I crossed my arms and refused to take it back. Damn stubborn boy, he grumbled. All right, fine, I'll take it. But we can't have you going through life without a pocket knife, so we'll trade. I was a little confused and concerned when he beckoned me to follow him into his cabin. But I figured if he was going to hurt me, he would have when I had fallen from the tree. I wasn't sure what to expect to see in old man Gerald's cabin. I guess I thought it would be filthy and trashy, but it wasn't. The place was small with a wood-burning stove to my left with a hutch on one side and open shelves to the other that held what looked like cooking pots and pans. To my right was a metal-framed bed with a patchwork quilt, but the bed was made and everything was organized and despite some dust, it really wasn't dirty. On the back wall between the bed and stove was a small wooden table with a chair to either side. There was a window above the table and one beside the front door under the porch cover. Gerald walked over to the hutch and opened a drawer. Before long, he turned around with an old three-blade stockman pocket knife and handed it to me. The blades had seen years of use and sharpening. The jig bone handle's texture was much smoother now than when it had been made. I studied it for a moment, and with the largest of the three blades, I shaved a thin patch of fuzz from my arm. Still sharp, I mumbled. Of course it is, Gerald replied. Ain't no use having a dull knife. It's not as fancy as your Barlow, but it's a good little knife, he continued. Now it's yours, holding out his hand to seal the trade. I shook his hand, but out of the corner of my eye, I noticed small wood figurines on one of the shelves. What are those? I asked. Gerald turned and looked. <laughs> those are my friends, sounding almost happy. I find sticks here and there and whittle on them sometimes to pass the time. I looked and saw different birds and animals all out of wood. There were even some human shapes and faces carved into some of the pieces. Can you teach me? I blurted out before realizing who I was asking. Old man Gerald stared at me for a bit and finally he replied, Ain't got much use for teaching children. Back to sounding grizzled, I hung my head and nodded it up and down. But I'll make you a deal, he said. I don't like going to the market, but I like that Dr. Pepper and I only got two left tied to a string in the creek over yonder. Bring me a Dr. Pepper and I'll show you how to use that knife of yours. And so it went. I would scrounge up old bottles and cans and trade them in for enough to buy one or two Dr. Peppers and take them to Gerald. By the time the summer was drawing to an end, I was getting pretty good at carving my own little birds and critters. Gerald and I would just sit under his porch and I would do my best to mirror what he was showing me. From time to time, while sitting out there, he would tell me stories. I never knew how much was made up and how much was true. But I came to enjoy my time with old man Gerald. 
It's as if time slowed down when I was with him, and when I was on his porch, I didn't care about the rest of the world. But all good things come to an end. School had started back for a week, and I had been missing my time on the porch with Gerald. I was half paying attention when the teacher got up in front of the class to make an announcement. Boys and girls, I have terrible news, she said, choking back tears. Billy Master's body has been found in the woods. He's dead. Billy Master's dead. How? My brain raced. Billy was son to Joe Red Masters. Red owned the local Ford dealership, and their family was one of the richest in town. That night, there was a town hall meeting with the sheriff explaining what they found. Billy was found tied up wearing only his underwear. His neck had been cut, and he had been hit in the head hard enough for it to crack his skull. Everyone was shocked. Who could have done such a terrible thing? Billy's mom sat on the front row crying and not saying a word. Red stood up and demanded justice and screaming he would kill whoever did this. It didn't take long for the fingers to start pointing to old man Gerald. After all, the townspeople already thought he was the devil that lived in the woods where Billy's body had been found. The sheriff and his men supposedly went to Gerald's cabin and could find no evidence he had anything to do with Billy's death. But things have a way of escalating in small towns. Murder and killer could be heard whispered around town. God knows what he does to children in that cabin, some would ask. He's the devil. It's Friday night and been a week since Billy's death and I'm sitting with Gerald for the last time. I tell him about what the townspeople are saying. I tell him to be safe and I walk home with a little wooden crow in my pocket as the sun just starts to set. As I turn onto Main Street in town, I can see several trucks and men with guns standing around. I see my father is with them. Where have you been? He asks, surprised to see me there. In the woods, Pa lying to him. I ask him what's happening and he tells me to get on home and that this is no place for a boy. I want to stay with him, but he gives me a look that means he means it and go home. When I get home, mom is sitting at the table smoking a cigarette. She tells me to fix myself a sandwich and get ready for bed. What's wrong? I ask. She doesn't answer. I told her I wasn't hungry and headed to my room. I felt cold inside and knew something was wrong. I fell asleep on my bed still dressed, waiting for something I couldn't see to happen. Where have you been? My father's voice screaming at me in the dead of the night as he came rushing through my bedroom door. Here, Pa, I've been here, I cried out. You said you had been in the woods, he said. You lied to me. In the half-dark room, I saw him hold something out to me. As the light caught it, I knew it was my Barlow knife. Where have you been? He asked again, half growling and half crying. I tried to find the words to tell him everything that had happened, but it was no use. He then saw all the small wooden items I had carved sitting on the shelf in my room. Even though I had carved them all, in his mind, he only saw old man Gerald. With anger and fury, he smashed the shelf as little wooden figurines went sailing into the sky. The next hours were a blur as my father held me close, crying. Even as I tried to tell him the truth, he just cried. His mind made up of some terrible sin old man Gerald had committed against me. He sat me in the truck as we drove to town. Back on Main Street, the sheriff was talking to some of the men gathered around the bed of a pickup. 
my father walked me up to the sheriff. He looked down at me and asked, Is it true? Is what true? I replied. I looked up at my father and he was nodding to the sheriff. I looked back at the sheriff as he lowered the tailgate of the pickup. There laying in the bed was old man Gerald. He was covered in blood and his clothes were ripped. His eyes were closed and I knew he was dead. I tried to climb into the bed of the truck. I wanted to shake Gerald and wake him up. I wanted him to open his eyes and look at me. But none of that happened. My father's grip kept me from moving and I just stood there crying. I later learned several men in town had been drinking and got it in their head that old man Gerald must have killed Billy. By God, if the sheriff won't take care of it, we will. And completely rational men, fueled by liquid courage, went to Gerald's cabin. Gerald may have been able to calm the mob except for one small thing. When they arrived, Gerald was whittling under the porch and in his hand was my Barlow knife. My dad knew it instantly. My father asked him where he got it not really wanting to hear the answer. They beat and kicked him until he didn't move. With their rage expelled, they stared at the motionless body on the ground. They convinced themselves they were heroes. They had righted a wrong and saved the town's children from the devil himself. So they brought the body back into town for all to celebrate with them. All except my father. My father, who had come home with a pit in his stomach. Between the wooden figurines in my room and Gerald's cabinet and my Barlow knife in his hand, my father had all the proof he needed to condemn the man and never believe a word I said from that moment on. The townspeople saw fit to bury my friend Gerald in the local cemetery with a tombstone that read, Gerald Bartholomew Reese, a devil killed by men. They even burned his cabin in the woods to the ground. They killed my friend and his memory, and the town rejoiced. Billy's father, Red, was quoted in the paper saying, Justice had been served. After everything that took place, my parents moved us three states away. Couldn't do for them to be the parents of the boy who loved the devil. In the townspeople's eyes, Gerald loved little boys and I was too innocent to understand the terrible things they believed he had done to me. Years passed and I had become a young man in high school with an interest in fast cars and Hollywood movies. I really thought about my life prior until one day I came home and found my mother and father sitting at the table with a newspaper between them. They were both crying. My dad could barely look at me and my mother handed me the paper. On the front page was Billy's father in handcuffs. Apparently, Billy's mom had been doing some spring cleaning and found a box on the top shelf of the basement pushed far back against the wall. Inside were photos photos no mother should ever see of her son and husband. Billy's father sexually abused him for years. The night Billy died, his father tried to have his way with him again, but this time Billy fought back. In anger, Red pushed his son hard and he fell hitting his head on the corner of the workbench in the basement. Red tied his own half-naked son up, took him to the woods, and slit his throat trying to make it look like that's what killed him. Who knows if it was that or the fall. As I stood there reading all this, my father stood, hugged me, and through the tears said, I'm so sorry. The following day, I skipped school and drove all the way back to Wicksville with a hammer and chisel in the seat beside me. I found Gerald's tombstone and took out my hammer and chisel. I chipped away everything except his name, and to the best of my ability, I carved one word. When I was done, I stepped back and looked at my work. 
As I stood there, a crow landed on the top of the tombstone. It may have just been a crow, but I like to think it was Gerald approving of the new message on his tombstone. Gerald Bartholomew Reese Friend I hope you enjoyed tonight's tale, Wooden Crows, by J.J. Bully. J.J. Bully grew up in a small southwest Missouri town which inspired his writing. He combines the mundane with the supernatural that make his stories feel real. He would like to thank the author Eli Pope for all his support and help as he starts his professional writing journey. He would also like to thank Tommy Good with the Moral Injury Institute for helping veterans like him find a voice. Finally, a thank you to his friends and family who believe in him and to his grandma who told the stories to him growing up. You can find J.J. Bowley on Instagram and Facebook at Man of Venture. That's M-A-N-O-F-V-E-N-T-U-R-E. If you enjoyed tonight's story hosted by yours truly, Paul J. McSorley, you can search my name on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for additional previous stories. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks. Available now on audible.com or just visit paulsbooks.net. That's P-A-U-L-S-B-O-O-K-S dot net. You can also find me personally on Facebook and Twitter. And with that, listeners, our weekly journey into the psyche has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And while you're at it, please remember to stop by our Apple Podcast page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and subscribe. The charts are based on subscriptions, not listens. So if you haven't subscribed yet, I'd really appreciate it. I'm your host for Fear from the Heartland, Paul J. McSorley. I've enjoyed the titillation tonight. Ooh, there's that word again. Thank you for joining me. Hope to see you again next week at Fear from the Heartland. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 